Welcome to a Hollywood and Beyond special presentation. Hi, this is Carrie Mitchum. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond with your host, Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Stephen. I once trained and worked as an actor in Hollywood. Today, I host Hollywood and Beyond podcast here in my hometown of Cincinnati, where I strive to bring you meaningful interviews. I hope you will enjoy my podcast. Thanks for listening. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for joining me today and welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Robert F. Lyons, a career that spans decades with memorable roles in both film and television, as well as theater. Robert joins me to share his Hollywood memories and stories from his amazing career, from growing up in Albany, New York, to his move to New York City to begin studying at the Academy of Dramatic Arts at the age of 17, and eventually his move to Hollywood. Robert goes in-depth on many of his filming experiences and Hollywood relationships, including the 1971 movie Shootout with film icon Gregory Peck. Having more fun? I like fun too, much as the next man. But I get less of it. Half, huh? Split it right down the middle. You and me? Where's Ducky? Well, put that gun away, I'll tell you. As well as his working and friendship with Charles Bronson. Well, I like that wrinkled look. Very sexy. Next time, go the whole way. You know, ask for less starch. I had a hard night. Don't talk to me about heart till you spend a night with Charlene. That woman is a total nympho. She couldn't keep her hands off me. I was so sore this morning, I thought it was going to fall off. Uh, Jesus, Art, I don't want to hear about your sex life. My head's killing me. Too much firewater last night, huh? You know, you've been hitting this stuff a little strong lately. Hey, I've got everything under control, okay? Robert shares stories of his time with Charles and the love that Charles had for his wife. Jill Ireland. All of this and so much more is included with this in-depth conversation with Robert F. Lyons. Before we get to my conversation with Robert 
Here is how you can send me feedback, comments, or questions anytime. Thank you for listening. Kick back and enjoy as Robert F. Lyons visits me here on Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Welcome, friends and listeners, to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, your home for meaningful and in-depth interviews. Thank you for listening. And now, your host, actor and writer, Stephen Brittingham. Hello, friends and listeners. This is Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, your home for meaningful and in-depth interviews and conversations. Thanks so much for listening. My special guest today is Robert F. Lyons. This veteran actor has worked with some of Hollywood's most talented and iconic individuals, including Gregory Peck, Barbara Bel Geddes, Don Johnson, and Charles Bronson. His impressive credits include television, film, and theater. Robert also happens to be a highly respected acting coach. It is an honor to have Robert visit me today. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, Robert. Thank you. So nice to have you joining me today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. No, I love it. Thank you, Stephen. Well, you are most welcome, sir. And I thought we would start with where you are from. All right. Um, I'm from upstate New York. Albany, New York was my hometown. That's where I grew up and went to school um, and left right after high school, went right to New York City at 17 and started my uh, acting classes right away at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts as a kid. Um, but I was familiar with New York City a little bit, it was close enough to my hometown. We had visited there and I had relatives in Staten Island. So I had some, very slight, but some familiarity with New York City, although it's a very different uh, action living quality <laughs> than my hometown. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. But I feel I grew up there, meaning I became aware of what life is really about and took on acting, you know. You learn a lot in those eight, in those uh, points, your later teens, I think. And Robert, is it true that you attended a all-boys military school? Yeah, high school. It's called CBA, Christian Brothers Academy. Four years. And what was that experience like for you? Uh, well, it was great to get it over with. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to be so short on it, but uh, it wasn't all that bad. It was, it 
no school provided for me what I was looking for, which was to be involved with something in the arts. I didn't even know that that's what was going on with me. So academia wasn't like something I was crazy about. I, uh, I had no purpose for it. You know, I, I couldn't grab a hold of things. I was not a great student. Uh, but once I got into acting, I mean, I just flew. I just loved it. I just felt the love of like, wow, I found what I wanted to do. And to me, that's a great harmony to find a purpose that you want to do in life. Young, when you're young, it's like you have a harmony. You and your work are together. And uh, you actually started in theater before television and film work. Yes, that's true. And what do you uh, find appealing about theater? Or when you look back to those early days, what were you enjoying about the theatrical experience as an actor? Well, I think the whole thing of training at that time was theater. Uh, We're talking in the the, uh, late 1950s. The preparation was mostly acting, which included uh, whatever medium you were doing it at. But theater, the wonderful thing about theater is it's live. It's now. You have to be able to sustain that performance for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. And you feel the audience. You're right there with them. Um, You get extra what I feel, perception, awareness of what performing is. You know when you're working well. You can feel they are with you. So uh, I learned things in stage acting that I had no idea. I thought all acting provided that for you. Because when I got to Hollywood, I went, wait a minute, where's the audience? (laughs) (laughs) Who am I playing for here? was really interesting because that was the one thing because you do a play it starts from the beginning and you go through the play the middle to the end in filming you shoot a scene but it's not the beginning of the film it might even be the last scene in the entire film or it could be a scene that is say uh, halfway through and you begin filming there In other words, you shoot by location. If there are eight scenes in a movie that are taking place in a bar, you're going to shoot those all at the same time. And uh, so you are not shooting in order. So your preparation for acting is different in that way. It's not terribly different, but it is different. I hope I'm making sense. You sure are. Those are fantastic descriptions. Well, thank you. When you rehearse a play, you are rehearsing everything from start to finish. When you get into a film, sometimes you're fortunate that you have at least a a week of going over it with a, a crew and a cast. So everyone kind of knows where they're at, but in most cases, that's not true you meet and you will do the scenes as they're set up for you. If it's on location or 
just right in the studios here. And the laughter from an audience, there's no, I'll tell you, that's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah, when it's supposed to be. <laughs> hey, if it's not supposed to be, it's, it's the complete opposite. Yeah. Well, I've, I've seen that happen, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But the wonderful thing about live theater is like whatever happens, happens. And how skillful are some of the actors in getting around it and handling it like the goofs that could happen where an actor drops a whole page of what's supposed to be said and how other actors will work around to get that page uh, back into the action of the piece so that people can follow and know what happened <laughs> in the play. So and, and this could apply to moments where an actor may have accidentally skipped over, let's say, one to two pages of dialogue. And as the oh, yeah. person opposite him, you have to be on your toes to, to, to keep things going so the audience doesn't really catch on to that. Oh, yeah. it's And sometimes it's funny. <laughs> yes. It's, it's funny because you know what's going on and the audience doesn't. So you're making excuses for laughter that maybe shouldn't be there. I mean, it's it's... <laughs> interesting. It's really interesting. And you and, had uh, Broadway experience as well as off Broadway. Yeah, I did a play called Andorra, and uh, there was a newspaper strike at the time. The play actually was not open for that long, uh, but I got a lot out of it, and I learned more of the administrative aspects of how to prepare and how to be ready to do what you're supposed to be doing by doing that particular play. Because I also understood the lead actor. I had a part in the play and I understood the lead. Uh, was a German actor by the name of Horst Buckholz. He was in Magnificent Seven. He was the young actor. And uh, we were about the same height, what have you, similar look. Back in that day, I think it was 1963, and uh, I did get to play his part on a New York, it was my first uh, in front of a camera role. Uh, they had live TV back then in a show called Camera 3, I believe. But we did a scene, a wonderful scene from the play, and I got to do it because he didn't stick around to do it. And how does a young man, you know, take care of himself, living expenses uh, back at that time? Is it rather similar to today? Was it a matter of waiting tables or uh, other type of uh, work to, so that you could do theater at night? Well, uh, actually, that's it's almost like a cliche. What What do you do? If you're an actor, you're a waiter. But I did wait on tables. I was a busboy. Uh, the idea of waiting on tables, I thought, my God, I'll drop stuff all over the place. But being a busboy, you know, and as a teenager or 20 years old, it was easy. But I had another job that is fascinating. And I don't know if, uh, I don't know if everyone will get this, but in New York at that time, and I'm sure it's today, there was a famous 21 club 
It's uh, one of the most wholly worldwide known uh, eateries in New York. And people from all over the world come there. It's it really uh, movie stars, uh, top people used to come there. And as a boy, I was uh, a hat check boy or a telephone boy. Then there were no cell phones or anything, so uh, there'd be a phone call for somebody, and you grab the phone that plugged in at the table. And you would go around and say, you know, uh, call for Mr. Smith, call for Mr. Smith. And somebody would say, here, kid. And you'd plug the phone in, and they'd give you a tip. And uh, that was a hell of a good job. <laughs> Just Fun like you job. see in, in the movies, uh, those type yeah. of scenes. <laughs> yes. Because uh, you name the, I mean, every top star came in there at the time. Joan Crawford was practically in and out of there almost daily. Wow. Um, and as a kid, to see all these film stars, I mean, I was like, whoa. I mean, they just came in. Sinatra would come in. Uh, Tony Curtis, Gary Cooper, uh, British actors. I mean, it just goes on and on. Even presidents would come. And uh, you got to see these people. It was like, wow. So I had that job from uh, probably, I don't know, when I was 18 to maybe 21, at least in the cold months, in the summer, uh, no need for coats, not in New York. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, that was one of the jobs I had, too. And um, it kept me alive. You must understand, rents were like $50 a month back then. I see. In New York. I mean, you say that today, I don't think people... You know, like what? I say, yeah. You know, a cup of coffee was ten cents. You know, well, I like talking. the sound of that because I love coffee, good coffee oh, anyway. Well, yeah, <laughs> yes. New York is known for corned beef and great cup of coffee. Very nice. There's a lot of that. Yeah, no. What a job! I mean, if that's yeah, a job you're going to have for a few years, to see all those amazing folks. That that had to leave a lasting impression on you. It made it real. Plus, I'm going to school, and occasionally I would see plays. So you're seeing live theater, live. It's live. Film, I, I have nothing against film. But the awareness that a young actor can achieve in his craft, in his skills... I recommend highly that he does plays, and I certainly promote that with my students and have promoted it. Because they're doing scenes over and over in a class, and you're learning by doing it over and over. And suddenly you own it. You suddenly own your craft, and your skills improve, and uh, you can refine them until you're very skilled. And you really understand how to use yourself. It's like having, being in harmony with yourself and the joy of doing what you're doing. There is a great joy in creating. And when you find that and establish that yourself, it's, it's like what Jackie Cooper used to say when you come in to work with him. You say, hey, this beats work, ain't huh, kid? <laughs> it sure does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it didn't feel like work. I think when you love something, it doesn't, you know, it's like, oh, God, I have to shoot another scene. It was like, oh, good, let's do it. We can do it better. We can improve it. So, um, anyway, that's just my own personal feelings about it. Well, thank you, Robert, and I completely agree with you. Doing what you love, it, it changes everything. And if if a person is fortunate enough to do that, I mean, that is just... That is just a wonderful thing. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's why I use the word harmony, because then it's everything is on the plus side. You, you can't wait to learn. You can't wait to do more. Uh, it's just tremendous excitement all the time. And uh, to me, that was finding a purpose. When you really find your, what you want to do in life, you know, you can't wait to get at it. It's not a, a dreary thing. It's like, oh boy, I, I can't wait to do more. You wake up right. You wake up having a place to go, either to a class that you really like. An actor should like really question their teacher, put him to work, make him come up with answers. Uh, I insist on that with my students. Yeah. Don't take what I say. You got to test this so that you can see it works in action. Because acting is action. Acting, it's a verb. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's something you do. So it's something you be and it's something you do. So I really push that heavy. I make them carry dictionaries so that they understand the words, the terms in their scenes. You're using uh, a writer's words and ways of stating things. Well, it could be very different than your daily way of talking. So you better understand his language if you want to do it well and yourself. That's an excellent approach. Most definitely. Yeah, it's a group thing. Acting is a group endeavor. Well, Robert, I am wondering, so you hear you, there you are in the Big Apple and you're, you're having all of these incredible experiences and learning so much and training and performing. My question is, what happened to have you finally go out west to, towards Hollywood? Oh, great question. I, <clears throat> I had some friends I went to school with that were already out here. And some of them were doing uh, some parts on television. And uh, one I had stayed in communication with, we'd write one another. Uh, who, and he was doing very well. It was an actor by the name of Mark Slade, who played Blue on High Chaparral. We went to school together. And, you know, we just would write back and forth. And he said, no, come on out, you'll work, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was doing plays downtown in New York, uh, off off Broadway. I did <laughs> Sam Shepard's first play uh, called Cowboys, and uh, I also directed a play down there at the same theater. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I don't know. It was just uh, other things in my life were not we're not exploding with um, success and when I'm going to give it a try. 
and um, drove out there. All the way and, across uh, the country. <laughs> oh, yeah. In uh, May of 65. So here we are in May of 2020. All these years so later. Stories. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't like it at first here because it seemed so laid back. And um, and when you're living in New York for so many years, you just feel like you're in action all the time. But what I got a call to go out on a Western called The Loner. <clears throat> and uh, I walked in the door because I was a New York actor. They gave me the job. I didn't even audition. I could, what? I was only out here two weeks. It was a small part, but it was a beginning. It was the beginning. And I went, yeah, and I went, oh, let me stick around a little, I, because I almost left. I must want, wait a minute, this is not my feeling. I didn't feel like here. I mean, actors were different. The There was very little teaching out here at the time other than film uh, teachers. And then the actor studio was just starting up at the time out in the West. It was very famous in New York and it was just starting up out here. So I went, I found that out and I was able to get in there and, uh, have a place to study and, and even learn even more. And, uh, so I, I started to work very early on, but I think the knowledge that I had gained and the experience that I had gained from theater was helping me tremendously for doing television. It gave you a certain uh, sense of discipline, I bet, as an actor. That's the perfect uh, term, discipline. Um, Yeah, it did. And uh, it also gave me a drive. I had such a drive to personally go. And uh, the same agency that I was with in New York, which was William Morris, I had an agent when I came out here. So I was a little ahead of some people. I mean, some people come out here and they don't have an agent. I was fortunate that I did. And a couple of guys over there were sending me out. And, you know, I mean, I was on the contract for a while to screen gems, which, uh, was a subsidiary of Columbia. And they did all the uh, half-hour comedies back in the day. Uh, I Dream of Jeannie, Flying Nun, uh, Bewitched. And uh, I was actually on the contract there <laughs> for six months anyway. That was fun. <laughs> I bet. So I got to do, oh, yeah, you're on a lot. Yes. You're on. But it's just as hard to get a job when you're on the lot. It's very funny. People think, oh, you're on the lot. You're being overlooked. You're being handled all the time. No, no. You have to continue to keep up with the casting directors and directors that were on the lot. Hi. Hey, hey, kids, for me, use me. You know, I mean, it was funny. I kept saying, I don't understand. They're paying me every week. And I'm still looking for work while I'm on the lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it doesn't wow. stop, does it? The seeking of work no, and opportunities, if, if, if you're wise no, about it. Yeah, people sometimes wait for opportunity. And I'm, sometimes you have to create your opportunity. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, 
promoting yourself, it, it sounds terrible. I, I, I'm not, it's not something I love to do. Or back then, I used to go, oh, no, that sounds so phony. Promote myself. I'm an actor. It's <laughs> an agent's job. That's somebody else's job. But, but by going around to the studios, then, back then, you could do that. I mean, I, I got a, a role on a wonderful uh, series called Night Gallery. By just having lunch at Universal one day, casting director went by and saw me and went, Bobby, I'm so glad to see you. I'll call you raising. I got a great part for you. <laughs> I went, okay. So having a hamburger at Universal <laughs> that day got me a That was a good decision. <laughs> I, yeah, it was. Uh, by well, what I meant by promoting, it was by just going around and saying hello, you know, people saw you. And directors say, oh, Bobby, hey, I got a thing for you. And that happened to me uh, by just saying hello. I made some phone calls to a couple of I'm glad you called because I got something for you. Otherwise, I wouldn't have thought of you. So it's just you make friends. And you make friends, for me, this was my promotion, by doing damn good work. If you do good work, you're already promoting yourself. Absolutely. So it, get, so it gets back to the discipline and the desire to be better. Well, you know, Robert, I'm thinking of two things here in particular. One is expect the unexpected. So you just gave a, a great story that uh, adheres to that perspective. But two... Boy, if an unexpected opportunity comes your way out of the blue, it goes back to training again, that you have to be oh. prepared for that opportunity, or it's most likely going to possibly pass you by. You're not going to be ready. Yes. and there's, Well, along with that, Stephen, there's two other things. And um, one of them is, I hear actors saying, why isn't the business this? Why isn't it that? It should be like this. I'm listening. I'm going... You got to turn your lights on. You got to see it what it is, not how you would like it to be, because you got to overcome real barriers in front of you, not what you would like it to be to make it easy for you. When people say it's too tough, it's not. It's just communication. I don't care what form. You know, you're going to have to communicate. You can't complain. Don't walk in the door and complain. Nobody wants to hear it. Walk in the door and present your talents. That's why it gets back to training. It always gets back to training and the quality of the teacher that you train under. It will get back to that. So it's not what it ought to be. It's what is in front of you that you feel is not happening. Well, you got to overcome that particular obstacle or barrier, however you want to call it, you know, and make that phone call. I tested this once. It took a student, took me 45 minutes for me to get her to pick up a phone and call a casting director. I'm not joking you. I said, let me see how long it takes. 45 minutes of excuses. Well, what if she doesn't like me? What if she gets upset? Yeah, we were friends in New York. I said, pick up the phone and make the call. She did, and it turns out when she got the casting director on the phone, she was very glad she called. I'm going, 
45 minutes of my life to convince this actor. So in terms of procrastinating and finding excuses not to go ahead on the next step, blew me away. I went, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a true story. Well, thank you for sharing that, Robert. Yeah, good actress, too. She was a damn good actress. So one can be a good actress, but are they really confronting, taking on what it takes uh, at the time? And those were different times. I mean, we're living in a different time now where uh, we didn't have uh, computers. We didn't have... Um, you know, you had to walk in an audition. Now you make demo tapes and you submit those. So it's not quite as personal as it was when I first started. And the director was always in the room when you auditioned or in most cases. So he had to look at you physically in person and make a decision. Yes, no. It's kind of interesting. And sometimes even with that, they'd say, what's your favorite film or show? And you would tell them. And they would have to order that from another studio, have it shipped over. They had to book a screening room and a projectionist sit down and watch you. Well, the advantage for you is they couldn't do that all day long. So they had to narrow it down to one or two actors and see some of what you did. And then choose you or the other person. It was a very adventurous and exciting uh, difference than it is today. Sounds like it. <laughs> That's a big difference from the demo rules of today and how everything's yeah. so instant. There's a lot more steps to it back then. I really enjoyed listening to you share that. Thank you. And Robert, I came across a credit of yours that I would like to ask you about. Uh, For one thing, the uh, leading male actor on the show would go on to be a part of another show, Dallas, and that he had a huge impact on me uh, as J.R. Ewing, and that is Larry Hagman. And I noticed that you appeared on an episode of I Dream of Jeannie, and I thought I'd ask if there was uh, a story there by chance. Well, that's, um, boy, I uh, I had a very small role. It was one of my first parts. That's um, that was that Screen Gems, that studio that is now Columbia Pictures Television. Screen Gems was um, that was when I was under contract to Screen Gems, the subsidiary of Columbia, wonderful Columbia Studios. And uh, you know, I was on the line, hi Larry, hi hi. You know, it was just that we weren't close friends at all, and um, I saw how to play the role. And just did it. I'm only on film. Uh, I don't know, less than a minute. Just about a minute or less. Okay. I think I think it's about that. It's uh, it's somebody who's just bringing something to his office and mm-hmm. that, that has humor to it, and we just shot it. And uh, my lord, that's that's in the '60s, the late 1960s. It sure was. Uh, yeah, I'd only been out here a couple of years, but. Uh, you know, I was always thinking acting every day. I was practically, people would think I was obsessed. And it's not. It's just that you have such a love for it that you just want it. You will 
push yourself to do what it takes. Small roles, but uh, yeah, I got to work with Larry. Hey, that's great that you can say that. (laughs) Well, listen, that was a very successful series. It sure Uh, was. I think they're rerunning it today or streaming it on some old shows. A lot of the old shows uh, are playing. I know that because I get residuals. It's playing somewhere. And isn't it interesting to think of him being, you know, so comedic in that role? But I'll tell you what. Wouldn't be too much longer, and he would have this multi-dimensional performance as J.R. Ewing, which all which always intrigued me. When I, you know, I growing up in the '80s, so to speak, uh, Dallas was a big impact on me, and I did want to right. ask you. So, thank you for sharing that. And Robert, I just have to say, if you don't mind, I, I can relate to so much uh, of your passion for acting. Um, I'll just tell you, you know, sometimes people think maybe I talk too much about my podcast or maybe I talk too much about my artistic uh, ideas or, you know, when I was a younger man, when I was starting out in acting, people would say, wow, you really talk about films a lot. But, you know, it's not that I didn't have other interests. Of course I did. And and balance is important, but it's passion. I think um, that the, the word that comes to mind when I listen to you speak about how you felt about acting. No, yeah, I would say it was passion because it's just, (laughs) it just grabs you in a way that you want to learn more about it. You know, it's about expressing yourself. It's not about holding back. Um, You know, it's like getting out there and learning about life. I think that goes along with any art whether it's music, dance, you're also learning about life because yes. art is an expression of life in one way or another. And today we're doing a lot of realism in film and stage. So it reflects life. And what is the uh, writer's message here? What is it that I'm trying to get at? What's the purpose of this writing? So that you can get it into the character and get it into what part of the structure of what's going on. And and sometimes that's hard to find. What is the message here? Uh, But with a smart director, he knows what he's doing, especially in film. Telling a story in film is very different than being on stage. It just is. I don't know if there's enough time or if I could explain it. Because when you are telling a story in film, it has to be on that film. The story, in a way, Pictures made for people to be able to comprehend and follow a story so that they don't get lost, so they can go, oh, I understand. Because you're looking at a picture, and the picture has to have some communication that goes along with the story. In other words, if you're doing a Western, it's nice to see uh, those hills and those plains and the emptiness of its day. You know, you don't show palm trees in Hawaii in a Western. <laughs> it, just, it just won't work. Somehow right. it'll throw you off. You know, you wouldn't think you had to say it. And yet that's why people laugh when they're looking at a period piece and a modern car goes by or some fluke and they just had, couldn't get it out of the picture. You have to use that shot. You know, yeah, people are always trying to find those kinds of things in the background. 
I work with a director um, named Henry Hathaway, a very famous director. He shot True Grid. He shot a film called Shootout, uh, co-starred with Gregory Peck. And he had a rule. And he had a rule which was do not bring a styrofoam cup of coffee on the set. You are not allowed to. Don't you dare do it. And uh, he would yell at you if you did. Because sure enough, an actor's going to leave that cup down. It's going to blow away if you're outdoors and wind up somehow <laughs> in his shot. If it was windy out or... <laughs> you got it. Instead oh, of no. tumbleweed, there it goes, oh, yeah. So you knew it had happened at some point. And I'm telling you, if you saw a coffee cup <laughs> anywhere, anywhere near his set, get that damn thing out of here. <laughs> he was not happy. <laughs> no, no. He's a coffee cup. Coffee cups meant trouble to him. I see. Styrofoam coffee. And I don't blame him. I, mean, I, I don't just, either. I mean, imagine having this excellent scene or it's just extra good and then here comes a coffee cup blowing in the wind oh my yeah or you have a western uh dinner setting and then on the table there's a damn <laughs> styrofoam cup says, well, wait a minute what the hell is that doing mm. there you know so these are some advanced cowboys <laughs> yeah, and somebody just didn't see the cup and now it's in the goddamn frame it's like <laughs> <laughs> oh my it's like you say, oh, it couldn't happen. I, I've seen stuff yeah. where you are laughing so hard. You cannot shoot. You can't film. You are laughing so hard because it's so ridiculous. Something happens that goes against the scene or goes mm. against life. It happens. I've done stuff that's not supposed to be in the film, because, it, but it's better than what should be on the film, so they leave it, and it was not intended. It happened by accident. Or it happened at the moment. Yes, uh, sometimes there's good accidents where, where yes. you go, wow, I'm actually glad that happened. Yes, it's true. Wow. Well, Robert, I'm thinking of something here. Uh, just discussing Westerns, and of course you've appeared on many uh, Westerns. And my question is, at that time, with so many in production, especially you know, in the earlier part of your career in California. I mean, what about the pressure of knowing how to ride a horse? Was that something that you 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 maybe needed to get advanced training? Or what was the whole situation with that? Because now we don't have as many Westerns. But back then, it seems to me, if you were an actor and could be on one of those shows, it might benefit you to learn how to ride a horse. Oh, you're spot on, Stephen. At that time, I don't know, there had to be 20, 25 oh, wow. television shows that, uh, I mean, Gunsmoke, Mananza, it goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And I did several of those television shows at the time. Uh, the true story of what happened was back to that first job I got was the loner. And um, I said, yeah, I could ride. But I hadn't been on a horse in a long time. I cannot tell you how getting on this huge horse, because you have wranglers, and they have horses that are very spirited. These are not horses like when you rent a horse for an hour, you know? Yes. We used to rent them for like five bucks an hour, or ten bucks, whatever it was back then. And they were barn, what you call barn sour. They would just plot along, didn't want to gallop or anything. 
Well, the horses for the studios were so spirited. I got on this thing, and I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sitting on a ton of power, and I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't stop it at one point. I scared the crew. Oh, no. They scattered. I scared. Now, now, on top of that, they took the horse away from me and put me on a stepladder. And you can say, what? Yeah. You see, a stepladder made me high up. They could shoot in a way and not shoot the ladder in the frame of the shot. And I thought they were doing that because I was so stupid. They do that anyway on most Westerns because a horse sometimes will move around. You know, they'll move their feet. And if for close-up, that means that the horse is moving, so the shot's going to look like it's moving. So they put you on a ladder. Does that make sense? Yes. So uh, that would happen a lot. But I, I didn't know that at the time. But they put me on a ladder because uh, I guess they were afraid that horse was going to run away again with me. And I, I, I learned very quickly. My friends took me out and we rode. And I would go and ride and ride during the day until I wasn't afraid of horses. It took a while. Because I had to be able to handle it. Because if you're not, uh, I mean, I never became Gary Cooper, let's put it that way. But I became to the point where I could do the acting. If you're so afraid of the horse, the acting goes right out the door. Because your, your attention is on trying to maintain some kind of control of something you don't have control in your heart and mind over. Mm-hmm. So the acting goes out the door. So it's the same way in film with driving cars. I fortunately was very good at that. I could ride, drive any truck or car that they gave me because when you're driving a car, sometimes you have to stop it right at the point where the camera is. You have to know how to do that. And for some reason, I just could do it. I learned how to do that so quickly. See, when doing stage work, you, you know, you don't have to worry about horses and cars, airplanes. You, you don't have to worry about that because <laughs> they're not going to be <laughs> not going to be things you're worried about. You know, uh, you can do a western play and you know come in like you just got off a horse. In film, you got to ride that horse in and get off of it and get back on it. So that becomes. That becomes part of your rehearsal, you see, see. or your drilling and your responsibility and discipline. Robert, I was wondering about in a scene where you would have to be on a horse, you know, in the script, but maybe there was a gunfire. So what about those situations? Okay, that's an excellent question. Uh, well, thank you. I think most of yeah, most of the horses I think that they had at that time, they could handle that. In other words, they wouldn't spook because of a gunshot. I see. That's what I was uh, anticipating. Yeah. Otherwise, I, you'd have a, some situations for sure. Yeah, it was so different then. First of all, back in the uh, late sixties, early seventies, you know we. Uh, you could borrow the guns. You could fire them off with blanks. You can't do that anymore, boy. Uh, none of that. 
goes on today. You, you better be prepared by knowing what to do. If you have to do a fast-draw character, you better get a set of kids' guns and go home and just draw until you can do it. I mean, you see, these are the things that if you're playing a character that is highly skilled in some way physically, well, they usually find an actor who physically is capable of doing certain things. Like Burt Lancaster, for instance, uh, was a man who was involved with circus life prior to acting. So physically, he kept himself very, very hmm. Uh, physically capable mm -hmm. and uh, muscular, and he could do those roles, and he did them very well. But he also knew how to stay in shape. That's something every actor and actress knows they're going to have to do because you're going to work long hours. You're going to work very long hours, and you got to have the stamina, so or and the skills of that particular character. You're going to have to work that. You're going to have to learn how to play that horn or guitar or I don't know what particular skill a character may have. If you're hired for it, you're going to have to learn that skill and be able to do it on film along with your acting. And if you're unfamiliar, they'll just tell you how much time it's going to take you to learn that. Well, this might be the perfect moment for me to ask you about a film that you were in with Gregory Peck and Shootout, I believe it was 1971, if I have that right. I mean, what an honor to work with Gregory Peck. And what was it like to work with him? When you think back on Gregory Peck, what comes to mind for you? Oh, just wonderful things. He's a wonderful man. I mean, the Peck that you saw on film was the Peck you had in life. He's a terrific guy. Very straightforward, very honest. Uh, he appeared to be serious, but he had a great sense of humor. Uh, he wanted to do comedy, but he, we talked about that. He said, nah, but the studio... He got to do Roman Holiday, which was the first film that... Uh, in Roman Holiday. Roman oh, Holiday? Uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn? Patrick, Audrey Hepburn, thank you. Uh, he, he, that was a comedy. He wanted to do more of it, but the studio yeah. saw him doing serious stuff. You know, he did wonderful films. My God. Yes. Uh, General's Agreement, uh, The Killer Mockingbird, in which he won the Oscar for. Uh, he was just terrific to work with. He knew what to do. He was a professional. He had also done stage. He started out on stage in New York. He did several plays. Uh, very tall man. Handsome man. Really, uh, I just thought he had great principles of life. Uh I've got stories there. Oh, <laughs> oh God. There's a scene in the film called Shoot Up where I'm supposed to slap him. And when you have a scene where you're making physical contact, you rehearse that and you um, stand a distance so that it can look like you're really hitting when you're not. But one of us got off our mark and I threw a... Punch and he caught it. Oh my! I was so ashamed and so upset. Oh yeah, and he stayed in the scene. We finished the mm -hmm. scene, and uh, it actually broke a little blood vessel in the white of his eye. I was so upset, mm -hmm. and uh, his 
you know, he had said something as soon as the shot was over, and Hathaway, the director, yelled, cut. He went, the kid got me. Oh, man. Uh, his entourage came in, and they're looking at me like, and I was, oh. So about an hour went by, and I went over to his trailer and knocked the door. He went, oh, Bobby, come on in. I went, wait a minute. I, I am so sorry. He said, oh, forget it, please. And we talked about it. He says, that happens. That's some of this happens. I said, yeah, but you got to see it from my point of view. I punched Gregory Peck in the head. <laughs> so he had a sense of humor about it. <laughs> <laughs> a true professional, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like that great line that somebody who was interviewing um, uh, Cary Grant once said, well, you know, he's talking to him in this fashion, but everyone wants to be Cary Grant. He Cary Grant said, I want to be Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and yes. It's like funny. People said, what you are, Cary Grant? He said, no, you don't understand. Those are characters I'm playing. He wants to be Cary Grant, too. <laughs> so, he, that says I so said, much right there, doesn't it? Oh, right. It says the whole thing. It's like, what do you think? These people don't have daily problems or relationship things or... Um, upsets or losing things, losing people, you know, it's life. Life is one thing. Movies is another, you know, these are two separate things. Um, One may have nothing to do with the other. Anyway, I said, yeah, but you have to understand from my point of view, I punched Gregory Peck. He laughed. What a story. Yeah, no, it is. It's a true story. And he told me, of others that happened with other actors who twice my size that clobbered him and he clobbered them. He said, nah, he said, the funny thing is, he said, it never looks as good as when we miss on purpose. And it looks like we hit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Robert, I've got to share this with you. I was raised by my grandparents and you know, of course, growing up in part of the 70s and in the 80s, I remember the days when television, there wasn't quite the variety as far as channels, you know? And then on the weekends, there was a lot of Westerns or, or World War II movies, I, I remember in particular. And my grandfather, who I called Dad, he loved those films. It's really what started my interest in in film, you know, John Wayne and Kurt Douglas and, of course, like Gregory Peck. And there was a a Saturday afternoon, we were watching a Western, and there was a big fight inside a saloon. Uh, The hero of the film, and I don't remember which film it was, he went up, he grabbed the guy at the bar, he said something, and then he socked him one. Well, I went to a commercial shortly after that, and I was very young, keep that in mind, and I walked up to him and I said, Dad, could you lean over for a moment? And he said, sure, and I socked him one <laughs> right oh, at that moment. Oh, no. Oh, and, no. And he just burst out laughing. Uh, of course, um, that's a story he liked to tell people through the years, but it, it, that, that all came back to me, so I wanted to share that with you. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, kid. <laughs> he thought I was going to whisper that. something to him, and instead I socked him, uh, just like yeah, the guy on TV. Yeah. Hey, we're watching this. Let me try it. Yeah, that's very funny. <laughs> but wow. Robert, I have a great question for you that I'm because you would know. You know, when I think back to Gregory Peck and let's say Richard Widmark, uh, Burt Lancaster, like you mentioned earlier, you know what comes to mind is such strong screen presence. 
I, you know, when I watch films with actors from that time period, they just seem to yeah. have this incredible posture and uh, focus. And I, I, I don't know. Did you pick up on that as well when you look back, uh, maybe with actors from that generation? Very much so. There was that sense of having a presence. And uh, I felt so inhibited at first as an actor. So to overcome that, it took some doing. Uh, but I think the stage work helped me with that. I see. It helped me a lot. Now, I had stories from New York and Times and... and um, even, um, well, here's one on the other side of that. When I auditioned for Shootout with Peck, the uh, director said to me, hey, kid, do you know who Richard Whitmark is? And I said, yes, Mr. Hathaway. He said, well, I discovered him. You remind me of him. I said, well, thank you. And if you ever you saw, what was it, Kiss of Death with, he played Tommy Udall who's this psychopath. And there's a famous scene in that movie where he takes an old lady in a wheelchair and shoves her down the steps. It's a very famous Mm. shot. Like Mm -hmm. the first time that kind of violence had been done, it was like, are you kidding? And it made Richard Widmark a star because he had this laughing psychosis throughout the film. I mean, he Mm. just played the whack job and and being the bad guy uh made him a star right away and Isn't it's like sometimes else? yeah it does yes i don't think actors are thinking that it's like people used to say you play a lot of bad guys said, yeah they're more fun sometimes because <laughs> <laughs> they are more explosive or they are more uh uninhibited, let's say, or they are more daring, or they do stuff that's just more outrageous. Um, I know my first film, I I got to do wild stuff where it wasn't in the script, but they cut me loose, and each (laughs) idea I had, a film called Pension, they let me do it. Oh, wow. That had to be exciting. Well, it was. It was a scene in a cell, and this was shot at Columbia, uh, and so that's a set, you know, and sets are sets. You, you, they'll wobble if you lean on them. And I wanted to run up the wall at one point with Richard Kiley in the scene. He was a New York actor that came out to do films occasionally. Wonderful man, wonderful actor. And uh, I said to the director, gee, I wanted to climb the wall there. He said, but that's a set. And they brought the set designer in. He said, no, I can... I can make it practical. Show me what you want to do. And I told him, he said, no, I'll fix it. So you can literally climb it because there's a scene where he's accusing me of being nuts. And, um, and I'm about to get out of jail after having committed murder. That's what the, that's what the movie's about. Pendulum. It's called with George Papard, Gene Seberg. And I literally climbed the wall and they kept it in. So oh, that uh, is amazing. Uh, Thanks for sharing. Yeah, it is. That. A, yeah, no. Uh, so I acting is action, action. What's the action? What are you doing here? So it can get awfully dull if it's just sitting and talking early days of television. If you remember, as you said, the television sets were not very large, mm-hmm. not like today. 
I mean, people's homes after walls the size. <laughs> we had 12, 14 inches, 16 inches, and it was black and white. You were talking about few channels. I grew up in Albany, New York. We had one channel. <laughs> one channel. It doesn't get any less than that. <laughs> it can't. And that it wasn't on 24-7 either. If yeah. you, do you remember at the end, they used to play the... Uh, <laughs> yes, the anthem? <laughs> yes, at the end of and the And you day, see a flag usually flying. Yes. Yes, <laughs> they would play the anthem at the end of the day. I do remember that. Isn't that something? Okay. Well, in Albany, and then if you got down to New York, they had three channels. Three. What, oh, my God. <laughs> three channels. You, can, you mean you can change channels? So I couldn't wait to get to New York. I had a choice now. I could have three. People laugh at me. They go, you got to be kidding. You know, I mean, today you're, you have a picture on your license. They, you know, back then it was just a piece of paper in your wallet. It, they didn't take your picture. And, you know, the kids look at me like, am I telling stories? <laughs> Well, you're telling the truth. You are. I know. I'm <laughs> well, uh, Robert, um, I thought of something interesting. So you were mentioning the fun of playing bad guys or villains. You gave a great example of why that would be the case. Or let's put it this way, what, uh, what it can give you as an actor, opportunities to do. Maybe doing a lot of things that you couldn't do if you played a totally different type of character. However, what about the fine line of portraying a real person that did horrible things? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is a film called The Todd Killings, in which you portrayed a real person. So you are the perfect person to ask that to. Well, um, that particular role, I mean, I never met the guy. Uh, he was a real guy. It was based on a real guy. It wasn't really his life. It was based on his life. Um, when you say here's a film that's based on a true story, that's uh, the script made me much wider than a lot of the events that actually occurred. Uh, what happened? They didn't even show what happened. It happened that Charles Schmidt was murdered in prison when he went to jail. I don't know how long he, he was in jail, but two guys took him out. Um, at the time, I wanted to go and talk to him. He was in jail, and the studio went, no, 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 don't do that. They're already having lawsuits, potential lawsuits, if they made the film, because it was from a book called The Pipe Piper of Tucson. And Abby Mann, who wrote the script, he was an Oscar winner for... He wrote Nuremberg Trials, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and also produced it. He was the one that hired me to do the role. I had just finished um, Getting Straight, which was a terrific role for me. And uh, he thought I was the actor to do that. Because I, I'm somewhat of a chameleon. I, I change from all the different parts I do. And... Um, to make this guy, to me, he was very charming. Uh, and that's what's very difficult is to say somebody who's intelligent, very charming. You can't believe at the same time, he's got a hidden psychosis that he gets this obsession to kill somebody. He's going to do it. Mm. And so that's the way this role was. 
there's a couple scenes in there where I, where I demonstrate that very clearly, especially with Richard Thomas, when uh, uh, I had to do with a girl, and he gets upset with me, and I tone him down, and you really see this guy's nuts. Mm. And then uh, Belinda Montgomery, who was the actress, the lead actress, and uh, wonderful to work with, very professional gal. And uh, the guy strangled girls. You know, that's what he did. <laughs> so, now, are uh, you an actor had- where it's difficult to leave the character on set while you're filming a movie? Let's say a character like that. I mean, or does it stay with you long after filming is done for the day? Uh, how would you describe no. yourself in that respect? I, you know, I've heard all this stuff. I don't, to me, there's, no connection. You know what you're doing. Gotcha. You damn well know. So to me, the people say, I can't leave the character. I'm going, I don't understand that. I don't understand. I can understand before a shot mm-hmm. to be off by yourself to create that mood. But after the shot or after the many takes of that scene, it's over. And there's a good feeling like, hey, I got that. You're back to being yourself because now you can objectively look at it. You have to have objectivity on what you're doing or what you're telling me that somebody says they're stuck with a character, they're in the subjective reality. I, I you know, then maybe acting's not for you. I mean, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've never, for myself, I just don't, uh, Can't I think, certain, I think gotcha. certain emotional states, like, I mean, I've, I've worked with actors who can't get angry. They don't want to be angry. I'm saying, you know, like being angry is against their own personal morals. And I say, I understand that, but you're not acting your morals. You'd be surprised how one's morals that they grow up with, with, they don't even realize those are guiding their life. They don't even realize they are uh, dressing life with their own morals. And if they don't fit the characters and you can't get out of them, you're going to have trouble being that character. So you got to have a willingness to change. Yes. You, you've, you've got to, I mean, your job is to bring the character to life. It's not saying that you're going to go around yelling at everybody, but your character might be. And, and that's, I would think that that that's how I view things when it comes to acting. I, I really do try to put the character first. Absolutely. Uh, You know, when you're on set or you're on stage, that's what you're doing. You're being that, but you're being aware of it. You know, I, here's the point. When you're doing a film, there's an awful lot of technical things you have got to do. You have to stay in the light. You have to stay in the frame of the camera. Those are all objective realities and they're all the intelligence of what you know you have to do. So I don't know how then you get crazy and forget those things at the end of the shot or the end of the day. Come on. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts on that. Thank you, Robert. And I would like to discuss some of your acting classes and, and, you know, all that goes with it. Uh, Before we do uh, just a couple things, I'd like to let the listeners know out there that, Robert expressed a willingness to come back to the show to discuss about uh, certain projects that he's done in greater detail. Uh, 
And I just wanted to share that. And Robert, thank you for that opportunity. I can't wait for that. I really appreciate it. And second of all, before we get to your acting classes and and being an instructor, I have to to take this wonderful opportunity to ask you about working with Charles Bronson. Growing up in the 80s, Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson seemed to have a film at the cinema all the time. And they were, you know, Charles was one of my favorites. So I'd love to ask you your memories of working with him. I know you appeared in Death Wish 2, 10 to Midnight, and Murphy's Law. That's true. Um, actually, I worked with both of them. I know Chuck um, Norris as well. Uh, both just terrific guys. Um, your question regarding uh, Bronson was that he just liked me. He had seen my work on television or somewhere, and he wanted me for another film, which I didn't do with him. And he was always a little bit upset that I didn't do a certain film. I'm not going to mention it. Uh, and and I understand it. He thought I was perfect for this film he did. Anyway, I got to work with him 10 years later, and he came right down to the set. He just liked my work. It was an interesting thing. You wouldn't think... Um, you know, you work with Peck, you work with Bronson. They had actors they liked <laughs> to work with, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you know uh, they just do. They like certain actors that they want. And Bronson just took a liking to me. He just did. And we got along um, to the point where I think on two of those films, I think he asked. I know the last one that I worked with on uh, Murphy's Law, uh, Jill Ireland, his then wife, was also the producer, and they insisted I do a role, which was written for someone else, and uh, they rewrote it, and I got it. Uh, so there are times and when you did you, a fantastic job, Robert. Thank you. Well, I didn't think I was in the film that much, but it was terrific to work with Charlie. By then. Uh, I was more like a friend to him and, and the director, by the way, was uh, Jay Lee Thompson. So uh, to go to the house and be a part of that was just wonderful. Uh, and Jill, too. They just, it's just one of those things where, you know, it's like a guy and a girl, they meet and they like each other, and there's no reason they just do. You just and click. That's kind of, it just clicked. And that's a nice way to put it, Stephen. That's exactly correct. And and uh, we just got along. And he just saw the way I did that. He just wanted that in his film. And I understand that, too. I understand that sometimes I've been in film and I go, why did they choose this actor? He's not right. That's your feeling. And other times you go, wow, they really cast this very well. You just get a feel for it, you know, and it's like, I don't know, you just understand it. You can just see how a person presents themselves. They're very right for the role they're playing. And the casting directors, uh, wow, what a task. What an ability to see who's right. So anyway, working with him was wonderful. In fact, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago called Bronson on the Loose, and I was interviewed for that. And there's a whole chapter devoted uh, from what I talked about to it. I was surprised that they gave me that much um, room to talk about. Well, I look but, forward to reading that. 
Thank you for mentioning yeah. that. I think it's called Bronson on the Loose. It's a paperback. Okay. I mentioned, uh, yeah, I love it. I mentioned several books. I well, that's that's I, great. Yeah, I've been immortalized. Um, Jackie Cooper has a book called uh, "Please Don't Shoot My Dog." It's his autobiography, and sometime we'll talk about why he chose the title "Please Don't Shoot My Dog." But he made a very nice comment for me on the thing we worked on, and I knew Jackie from when he was the vice president of. Screen Gems, and then again, he was a director 10 years later of a pilot I did with him. Um, so he mentioned me, gave me a decent mention in his book. So uh, back to Bronson, he's just, he's just, I don't know, I just love Charlie. He's a, a guy who was not a man of a lot of words. Uh, his presence alone spoke. You know, you look yes. at him and, and you knew what was going on. And he and Jill were so in love. When she came around, a different Charlie Bronson was there. Hmm. And it was wonderful to see. It was wonderful to see two people so much in love. I used to love it. Well, that I really mean, warms my heart. I can just picture that in my mind. Yeah, to, to see a, a guy, sort of his humor and a little bit of the little boy in Charles Bronson came out. He was crazy about her. They just, uh, what a couple. They were so relaxed with one another and just so in love. I don't know. I just loved viewing it, watching that, going, wow, look at that. That's a special thing to see. Yeah, it was special when he was on the set and we were out in public. Uh, he had a certain way of dealing with things, especially if any kids were around uh, and they were uh, at once... There was some guy he didn't want around the set. And the guy came back around uh, again. He said, I told you to go. Now get out of it. And he just, this guy didn't look good. And Bronson, for whatever reason, he picked up. He didn't want him around. He told him, get out of here. The guy left. Hmm. And I went, whoa, okay. Uh, that was a first. You know, there was no mm -hmm. fight, no nothing. It was just Bronson going, this is not okay. He just had this thing when kids were around, uh, little kids, you know. Just, I see. Yeah, I, he was an amazing man. He really was. Uh, I. It's not like you sat down and you had deep talks. He kind of like, I don't know, he just sort of measured you by his whatever standard that was. And you either <laughs> fit it or you didn't. Uh, you know, I, I don't well, know. He must I mean, have thought have... very highly of you then. Oh, yeah, he did. He loved my acting. That was it. He loved my acting. I think he felt like, yeah, he's doing the stuff I want to do or I like <laughs> to do. Or the quality of that. Wow. He, I, I like to be very real. That was so pushed on us in New York. In a class in the bathroom storage, I had a great teacher in New York. And you had to be real. Boy, that was tough. You had to be real. You couldn't do this acting that was unbelievable or false or what they call over the top. But you just didn't believe it. You knew you were acting. No, you wanted realism. That was what came in with uh, the actor studio and Brando and Dean. Being real, being believable on the moon. You had to be believable, convincing other people that what's happening right now is what's going on. 
and uh, Bronson certainly could do that. Yes. And, uh, and that feeling, like you're acting, you're doing it. And uh, you're making choices that other actors don't quite see how. I had some, a couple of very good teachers, by the way. I mean, I studied with Stella Adler and then uh, Arthur Storch. He was brilliant. He was a member of the actor studio. And then Adler, of course, was Mom Brando's teacher. And he talks a lot about her. And I can see his, her talk. I can see it in his work. Uh, not that I can see the seams of Brando. I'm not saying that. But I understand how he could have arrived at great things based on her teachings. She was something else, boy. Uh, and then I started with a guy named Katsilis out here. And he, uh, he made me take on big, big pieces, big, very large characters. So that it challenged me to grow. So I had some very good teachers who knew what to do with me at the right time. That, uh, may have something to do with it. You know, each step that you grow as a growing actor, what's the next thing to do? What's the next thing to do to take take you up a notch? And there's some very good teachers that know how to do that. And uh, um, oh, at the actor studio, there were some people that could be pretty good at it. You know? Well, uh, Robert, I have to thank you for sharing memories of Charles. I had just enjoyed every moment. I could picture so much in my mind. So thank you for such a, a warm uh, recollection of, of Charles Bronson. I will tell you two things really quick, Robert, before we get to your acting classes. And one is, one of the things that I still love about Charles Bronson is that when I watch especially those action type of films, because the man did a lot of drama as well, especially earlier yes. on in his career. He wasn't just an action star. He could do the heavy material. But I was always impressed by, let's say, in Death Wish 3 or 4 or Murphy's Law, you know, he, you know, like a brooding character. He could say so much with so little. And I always picked up that there was like a softness to his characters. Like no matter how tough they were, they were doing, they, they were fighting for justice. That's all. That's the only, that's the only pass the character needed was that they were on the right side. And, and I just found him so fascinating in that, that combination. Yeah, he was, he had that. And, but I think that was captured in those roles, but he knew you still have to know, have it and be able to play it. Yes. I mean, I, he was terrific in Magnificent Seven. He was terrific in Dirty Dozen. Uh, he he got, go on and on. You, you start to see the different films. Mm -hmm. He had such a heart in yes. these films. In Magnificent Seven, he had a, such a thing with children. That was that character's thing, how he cared about the kids, how he took care of the, the young Mexican kids and felt for them and tried to keep them out of danger. It cost him his life in the film as the character. Uh, but that's Charlie. I just think he had that. I, I witnessed that on the set when I told you, when he saw kids. Yes. I never even realized it until just now. Yeah, he had that thing, something about kids. He just sensed people who were not quite, uh, if there's any danger around, he handled. Get out of my, don't don't be around here. Mm -hmm. You're distracting. Yeah. Well, Robert, uh, the last thing I'll tell you 
before we go to your acting classes is, and I have no problem saying this, but the day that Charles passed away, I, I shed one or many tears that day. It, it just felt like, you know, one of my film heroes was gone as well. But the beautiful thing is that there, as actors, our work lives on. And I still enjoy watching Charles Bronson movies, but that was a very sad day for me. I understand it. It was for me, too. I'm sure, I'm sure it was. And thanks again, yeah, I mean, Jill, Yeah, Jill passed away first. She died of cancer. And that yes. was, I mean, I was so, uh, when I heard about it, I, I hadn't seen him for a while. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I just didn't know what to do. I was so kind of like, wow. You say, well, it's easy. You just offer your condolences. And somehow, I, I just didn't see myself being able to do that for Charles Bronson. I just, I had seen the two of them together and I had perceived a tremendous depth between them. I went, how the hell do you offer condolences? I, 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 I was stunned. It may not be enough uh, under the, that circumstance with yeah, their I mean, love so deep. I, I, I can understand that. Well, this is my personal observation. Others might look at me and go, what the hell is he talking about? I never saw that. That's what I saw. Maybe somebody else saw something different or they didn't see it. That's what I saw um, when they were together. That's what I saw when they were laughing or off the set. And very because I've heard of other uh, people, like a friend of mine, Charles Durning, who was a dear, dear friend yes. of mine, worked with Charlie. And he had said something about going somewhere, and uh, Bronson said, nah, I go home. That's where I go after work. In other words, mm -hmm. he was not somebody that liked to go to a lot of parties and do a lot of that stuff. He's done with his work. He goes home. I'm saying, okay. And I know Charlie Durning. I mean, we worked together a few times. I knew Charlie. I met him in New York. And uh, Charles Durning, another great actor. Okay. Wow. Oh please. I mean, the list of things and we work together and some things that we should talk about sometime. Uh, sure. Because even in the Muppet movie, Charles Durning is appealing. Yeah. <laughs> no, Robert, I discovered my passion for film. I really think in the early, early eighties in particular. And anytime I saw something with Charles Durning, I was very excited to see him in. Yeah. He was, listen, Charlie, Charlie and I were very close. Um, unlike Bronson, we never talked on a personal, got into one another. Do you see what I'm saying? It was just yes. sort of accepted. Charlie and I, we really knew each other. We really, I don't know. Uh, we spent every Thanksgiving together for probably the last 20 years of his life. Um, I, I just, I could go on and on about that guy because, and we worked together. Uh, Several times. Well, I look Several forward to learning more about him when you come back and visit me, hopefully soon. And, and just yeah, thanks yeah. again, Robert, uh, for all these wonderful stories. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, listen, I love going over them. They're pleasant things. Um, out of all the things that I've experienced during my uh, adventurous career, to say the least, and it's been an adventure, believe me, <laughs> I have I have so many fond memories and memories that I love. Uh, hopefully they will 
outweigh the others. You know, uh, there's the other side too, but these are pleasant to talk about because they put the smile back on your face and make you remember things and people and situations that turned out favorable, not just for me, but for others as well, or for the entire production of that time. That's mm. when it's fun. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you so yeah, much, sure. Robert. And now, obviously, I think if someone is listening right now, they would realize if anyone's qualified to teach acting, it is Robert F. Lyons. There's no doubt about that. But I would like to ask you, what do you enjoy? So you flip the coin. You, you, it's obvious you appreciate training and enjoy it. So as a teacher, what do you like about being an acting t- a coach? Well, I, I, first of all, I decided to do it because I had so much success at a certain point. I said, I'll do it for about a year or two and give something back because I thought I had some things which would be easy to teach and so many actors were missing it. And I thought, that's not okay. So, you know, 25 years later, I'm still teaching. And, <laughs> and I was like, that's a long two years. Um, it just got to the point where I had seen other teachers and I just didn't like their manner. I, I don't talk down to people. Don't talk down to someone who's trying to learn how to create. That would tick me off, man. That would just piss me off that you would talk down to somebody who is, you know, trying to do some work. Maybe it's not the best that they just put in front of you, but that's the best they've got at that time. You don't put them down. You help them. You give them the knowledge to improve. That's what any educator's um, job is, not to... uh, You know, are there students that come in to goof off and what? Get rid Mm. of them. You know, take them aside and say, this isn't for you. I haven't got time for you here. You can't do that. I had to do that a couple times. Yeah. Uh, People that were just creating craziness. It's like, that's not what this is. Uh, I'm just not the teacher for you. You know, over 25, 30 years, that's not bad. Because I would you know, go off and do a film and come back and pick up the teaching or go off and do a television show, come back, you know. I mean, some television shows you, you got to go on location. You do a Magnum, which I think was on last night. Or no, there's a Magnum tonight, something. I don't oh, know. Okay. I did. A, I did a Magnum. Uh, yes, you did. Be, I think it's on tonight somewhere. Somebody told me on Facebook. Okay. I'll have to track that down. It's one of my favorite television things because it was hard won and I won it. And it's a story in itself of, of what you have to do sometimes to get a part, uh, especially a, a wonderful role like that. It was the guest star, uh, top show of the day. Yes. But anyway, uh, the teaching aspect was just something that I felt I could reach to people and enjoy it because I love to see people win, especially in acting. There's nothing greater than watching somebody grow up right in front of your eyes. You see it right then and you go, holy Christ, they just got it. They got it. And they know it. They can feel it themselves. They feel their own growth. Mm -hmm. 
And my own policy, I tell you, you should leave class here, every one of you, at night. When you go home, you should have left here knowing you advanced somehow. You got some gain. You better leave here feeling gain. And those are just my own principles of it. And, and uh, yeah, love to do it. That's all. And after a while, you know, I you also learn. You learn from teaching. You just do. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. wh- what would you say to a young person? Maybe they're arriving to California for the first time or wherever it might be, New York or anywhere. If there is a choice for acting coaches and classes and workshops, and we both know there's a whole bunch in Los Angeles in particular, it might be overwhelming to that person to try to really find the most beneficial instructor, maybe what they're really after. Uh, Any suggestions or advice when one goes through such a process? Well, it's funny that you said that because I wrote a very short thing for that very purpose. For that very purpose. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. um, And it's somewhere on Amazon.com. But I, you know, if someone wanted to get a hold of me, I'll get them a copy. Because in this 20 pages, I've broken it down into a simple thing of what your responsibility is so that teachers don't say things like, when you ask them a question, they don't say, well, someday you'll know. That's not teaching. That's not teaching. I say to them, okay, well, then someday I'll pay you. What the hell am I paying? <laughs> no, well, I do. When it I kicks don't. in, I'll pay you then when I, when I, when yeah. I figure it out. <laughs> yeah, well, if, when I figure it out based on this in some time, I'll find, and that's a generality. <laughs> You know, because in acting, you don't need generalities. You need specificity. You really need the specifics mm-hmm. of how to go about it, either technically, philosophically. I don't care. But it has to make sense to the person who's in front of you. And this is the difficulty in teaching is that you're trying to do it. There are certain things that fit everyone. And then there are things that only can be taught to the person in front of you. Because the others don't need it. So it's an interesting uh, situation between a teacher and a student that I've discovered. These are just things that I've discovered as a teacher. You are addressing the person in front of you and his needs or her needs uh, or what's her next step. And I teach them to ask the right questions. I said, if you go to other classes and the teacher says things, you must ask them. You have a responsibility to say, I don't understand you. Don't, when I say to you, does this make sense? Don't shake your head when it, and lie to me. If I say, does it make sense? And you say, no, it doesn't. Then we go back over it until it does. Mm-hmm. I said, you can't leave here and pay. That's the exchange. You're putting a few bucks down for knowledge, hopefully. Knowledge that you can use. If you can't use it, what good is it? Very true. That's very true. You know, I bring it down to that level. Like, you better know when to say, I don't know what you're saying. And I say, okay, well, maybe it's the words I'm using, whatever. I make them buy dictionaries, for Christ's sake. It's just... Well, I, I, I think I'm going to go get one for myself. I, I do have a big dictionary, but 
Maybe I'll get it more of a smaller size and carry with me because you have me well, thinking I, about that now. I've got about 20 of them. The point <laughs> is, in acting, you're in a literary world. You're reading other mm-hmm. people's ways of talking. And it's not just the vocabulary. It's the understanding of language on a wider scale. I mean, I do it still. I'm, I look in a dictionary just about every day. Just about. And uh, because then you really know what is being said. Now you understand it. Understanding is what we're all trying to get. Yes. Yes, <laughs> if you If you don't know the words, you're not arriving at understanding. I'm sorry. You're arriving at misunderstanding or not understanding. And the, those are not abilities, or maybe they are. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not the ones that you can use uh, necessarily. Anyway, uh, that's just what I have learned, uh, to, to make sure that the guy or girl in front of you can use what the hell you're saying. So then it, they prove themselves out. It's not hit or miss. Well, Robert, we discussed, um, a few of the people that have uh, taken your classes and one is Michelle Stafford and the and we had an interesting discussion about the, her and one of the things i brought up to you was i really like her choices when she does scenes and yeah. you must have um you know that must have been a very enjoyable experience with you uh working with michelle in the class right it was um because she started with me as a young girl she started with you then okay yeah, her first classes were right there. and But she was always very daring, as I think I spoke to you earlier, is that she was really wanted to know and uh, not afraid. Uh, she would take on those things she didn't feel good about and then, you know, uh, to rise above it and become uh, in charge rather than the effect of something. She wanted to know how to do it. And... Uh, as I said before, to me, she's a firecracker. I still call her a firecracker whenever <laughs> I see her. I really she, see That's her, a great description. I'd say, you, yeah. you know what it is about Michelle that I'm also impressed with, uh, Robert, is that, I mean, I, I mean this in the most sincere ways. I just feel like if I was a writer writing for her, that I could give her just about anything. And, and, and I would know that she's going to make it work. And I just have to uh, tip my hat to her for that. Well, that's a fact. You've just hit it. Yeah. There's another one, too. Um, so the orange is the new black. Yes. Uh, yes. Laura Papon, who was oh, the okay. co-star. Uh, she did not start with me, but uh, she's been with me for a very long time. Um, and you talk about another one who really grasps and learns and knows how to take on uh, tough situations. She's even now directing. Um, oh. Yeah, but I think the show now has hit its final year. Yes. yes. And uh, so Laura now is living in Brooklyn with her beautiful daughter and her actor oh, husband, Ben. Yeah, and then there's a wonderful actor here also, uh, Jason Doring uh, from Veronica Mars. 
Do you remember the series Veronica Mars? Uh-huh. Jason Doring, young, very all-American kid, uh, kind of causing the trouble in the series. Uh, wonderful actor. He's one of mine. And uh, he's all over the place now. He's done a couple of different series. And he's working all the time now. Well, they're all very fortunate to have, you know, have you as a their instructor. Uh, Thanks. Just yeah. with all your years of experience and and plus your perseverance is something I think of when I think of you and your dedication and your sincere passion as well. And obviously very talented you are. There's no question about that. You have that screen presence that I mentioned about the other gentlemen as well. And Robert, uh, you have a website where people can go to to learn more about the acting classes. Yeah, it's called InsideActing.com. All right. Well, I'll be sure to share more information on the Hollywood and Beyond social media pages as well. And Robert, I just have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for an absolutely um, wonderful, in-depth, and enjoyable conversation full of Hollywood history, too. Thank you so much. Wow. Really? Did we? (laughs) We did that, huh? We did (laughs) that. Or I should say, you did that. And I thank you for that. No, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate the interest and the uh, um, questions. I enjoy it. I've just enjoyed so much of this that uh, it's easy. It's easy to go back over it. These are pleasant times. They are fun times. They are learning times. You're always learning. Always. Perseverance. That's something I learned from my dear mom. (laughs) From mom. (laughs) Yeah. As a kid, she used to say, you must persevere. Whatever you do, you must persevere. And I don't know that I even understood it at first, except I got to keep going. To keep going. Well, you, you, got, you succeeded. You, you, you sure did. And, and Robert, I Thank just you. can't wait for you to come back. Thank you. All right. Anytime, Stephen, really. I've enjoyed it. You must know it. Uh, this is effortless. This is fun for me. So anytime, I'd be very willing. I got stories, unbelievable stuff to tell you. <laughs> Thank you very much for a wonderful interview. Hollywood and Beyond podcast created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in.